Good morning, Fremont Community Church. So much intrigue in that music. It's not like a <laughs> spy movie. Uh, I'm excited to start this new series today, but let's, let's invite God to be with us, to speak to us today through his word. Jesus, uh, we are here for you. Um, we open up the words that you spoke when you were here in the flesh, and we want to know you. We want to be shown how we are to live as individuals and as a church family um, in your footsteps. So speak to us this morning, Jesus. Um, Lord, we hold all of our opinions, we hold all of our um, Views of how the world works lightly. God, teach us your way of seeing things and help us uh, to follow in your footsteps, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so excited that we got to, to worship in two languages this morning. I think that's such a beautiful picture, a small taste, a small glimpse of what eternity will be like of people from every tribe and language, people and nation. And that's, that's why uh, we did that this morning. We've got an amazing, you know, church family in Vida Nueva and to welcome them in and to share that time with them is great. We're going to do that again, uh, sharing communion together and worshiping some more. But um, for some people, the first time they experience something like that, it's a bit disorienting. You know, you're, you're experiencing a new culture for the first time. You're, you're doing something familiar, but through somebody else's language or through somebody else's way of doing things. And sometimes it's a little difficult. Many people uh, in the Fremont area, many people in this room, uh, this is America is not your first culture and English isn't your first language. And so you've had to navigate this uh, in many ways throughout your life. For me, I'll never forget one of the first times I was uh, invited into, in my own neighborhood, essentially, into a home that was a completely different culture than mine. Uh, we, we became friends with a pastor named Amos, a man from Nepal, who um, was there in the Chicagoland area with a heart to reach Nepali people. There were just tons and tons of uh, refugees from Nepal. And so we got to befriend him and his family and uh, share meals together. And then one day he said, come to this he called it a house church. He's like, there's, we call it a house church, but there's no Christians in it yet. There are uh, people who are from Nepal, and they just are curious about Jesus. They want to know more. And so I show up for the first time thinking, hey, we're just going to eat a meal with these people, get to know them a little bit. And like 10 minutes in, Pastor Amos goes, all right, Eric, share the gospel. And I'm like, huh? Do what now? <laughs> Nobody here speaks English. I don't speak Nepali. And what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, and so uh, I just, oh, okay. There was a huge barrier, and God is good. He used that time. He used my words somehow. He used Amos as a translator. But there were huge barriers uh, to, to what was going on there. I don't know this culture. How do I speak into a culture that I don't know, that I'm just starting to be familiar with? How do I share the gospel in a language I don't understand? And this is where the church has been for 2,000 years, surrounded by other cultures and wondering, how are we supposed to interact with these cultures? How are we supposed to interact with the world around us? You know, Jesus says through the scriptures that we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're his people first and foremost. And that's often going to put us out of step with the world around us. Maybe just different cultures and different values, but even maybe our own culture, we have to say, hey, there's some things here that aren't from Jesus, and, and we have to take a hard look and be honest with those things. And throughout the generations, there have been a number of attempts by Christians to understand how we're supposed to interact with culture. And I've got some images, I've got some pictures that might uh, help demonstrate these views. The first is the image of a judge, that the church is ultimately to judge the culture, to tell them what they're doing wrong, and call them to follow Jesus, okay? Um, the second one is Amish. 
Let's just be Amish. The world is messed up. Let's get out of here. Let's separate. And there's varying degrees of this mentality, but let's just, let's just keep a distance from the world so that it doesn't pollute us. Then there's, uh, you see someone swearing on a Bible there. There's people who are like, you know what? The good guys need to get power. And if the good guys get power, everything will be all right. We're going to dominate culture and make it in our own Christian image. And then the last one, my favorite one of all. We try to blend into the culture. We, we, we take uh, the culture into consideration. We, we uh, try to allow the culture to influence us so that we can then influence the culture. We look very similar to the world around us. Now, there are, honestly, there are strengths and weaknesses to all of these approaches, but these are the different ways that the church has tried to wrestle with. How are we supposed to work in the cultures around us? I want to make the case today that all of these... Um, methods or, or views of how to impact the culture are actually more shaped by culture than by Jesus. Um, they're a reaction to a culture as opposed to being a proactive way of being that will interact with cu the culture in some way or another. But most of these were formed in a reaction to something that was going on, and I want to look today to Jesus. Throughout this whole series, I want to look to Jesus. How did he interact with the world around him? And then what does that mean for us in our time today? So we're going to look at the Gospels over the next four weeks. We're going to discuss a number of different things. And um, we're starting this new series called Christ and Culture. How did Jesus approach his own context? What does that mean for us? Each week I've picked a song that popped into my head as I was writing these sermons. And the first one is that sweet, sweet 90s hip-hop jam, I've Got the Power. You guys know the one I'm talking about, right? I've got the power. You know it. Um, Please don't make that into a meme. Uh, <laughs> today I want to talk about how did Jesus use his power, the use of power, how, how the church engages with power is one of the most important topics of our time, and I, I hope you see why this morning, and I hope you see why this is the kickoff of this series. But we're going to start by looking to Jesus' words in Mark 10. Then James, excuse me, this is verse 35. Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup. I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. What a tongue twister. Come on. <laughs> but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to, to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers and Gentiles lord it over, uh, rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I love this, this verse because <laughs> he asks them a question. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you drink from the cup I drink from? And they're like, yes! And he's like, 
well, yeah, you can, but you don't understand what my baptism means. You don't understand the cup I'm going to drink. He, he knows he's going to suffer something they don't know yet. And I love this phrase, not so with you. This is not how it's going to be for you, for my disciples. I have to think about this th- story through the lens of James and John up to this point. Think, think about how they likely would have viewed the world. They, they were in Roman-occupied Israel, and they're waiting for a Savior to come and make things right to set them free, right? That's what's going on in the history. But they've seen this guy, Jesus. He has the power to do miracles, to change water into wine, to heal people, to literally control the weather, to calm storms. Now, if only that power could be applied to something bigger, In this vision, they likely see themselves following Jesus into Rome, and Jesus would kick out the Romans and the religious leaders and establish himself as the rightful king of Israel, and the new glory years of God's people would begin. And I don't know how they expected to do it with such a small group, but I kind of imagine that they thought it would be like Jesus and uh, like Darth Vader in Rogue One, where Jesus is like force choking people, and he's like an army of one. He's just beating everybody up, and it's terrifying. They probably thought that's what he was going to do. I mean, he calmed the storms. Why can't he do that, right? But if you know the story, that's not at all what Jesus does. That's not at all what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. And I'll talk more on that in a bit, but something like this was was what was in the minds of the disciples, and they wanted a seat. Let us sit at your right hand and your left. When you come into your glory, they're not talking about some heavenly future. They're like, hey, when you go in, kick butt in Jerusalem, let us be your right and left hand men. Let us be your cabinet members. Jesus has a different vision for us, and they couldn't see it yet. Jesus calls us to be different. He's saying, this is the way the world works, but not so with you. This may be the way the world works, but this is not the way my kingdom works. Jesus is telling his followers, first to the 12, his closest there, but every disciple of his up till today, to you and me, that we are to engage with the world around us in a different way. And how we deal with power in this world really matters. Jesus talked about it a lot because power dynamics are at work everywhere, right? There's a hierarchy everywhere you look. The most obvious is where Jesus mentions in in rulers, the rulers of the Gentiles. He's talking politics. And we're going to talk about that next week. And I'm going to say a lot of really controversial things, so just buckle up. I'm going to talk about all the politicians you love. I'm going to talk about all the ones you hate. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I want to give us maybe a different way of thinking about politics through the lens of Jesus. Um, But but we have to to be honest with ourselves in these conversations. Sometimes the way that we engage in these conversations are so different than the way Jesus did. And so let's take a look at how Jesus looked at politics. But power dynamics are at play everywhere. They're at play at your workplace, right? There's hierarchy there. They're at play at your school. They're at play in your social circles, whether you recognize it or not. Power dynamics are at play in your home and and even in the church. And I actually want to take a bit of time to talk a little bit about that. And I've talked about abusive leadership in in churches before, and uh, I'll probably stop talking about it when it stops happening, but it just keeps happening. In the past decade or so, church abuse scandals have been uncovered over and over again, and I've been trying personally as a pastor to process through this all. It started, you know, with the Catholic Church and all their abuse scandals, and as a Protestant, it was easy for me to step back and be like, whoa, that's messed up. Glad I'm not Catholic. Like, that was sometimes the mentality, almost like, well, this couldn't happen to me or to us. 
But then, you know what happened to the Southern Baptists? They're exposed for not only having pastors abuse their power, but having their entire denomination, the leadership of their denomination, cover up those things so that they don't become public. Instead of bringing them into the light where healing can happen. And I was like, whoa, those aren't Catholics. Their church structures look a whole lot more like mine. And then it happened at two large churches in Chicago, which were uh, built theologically and structurally almost identical to the way uh, that the church I was serving at in Chicago was. Their lead pastors had moral failures related to the abuse of power, and all of a sudden I was running out of reasons why what happened there can't happen here. And for me, this was a breaking point. What is going on? How do these things keep happening in all of these different church environments? And if you or someone you care about has been hurt by the church, I want to pause and say, hey, I'm not saying this to dig up all this stuff to make you have another reason to give up on church. I I think we have to expose these things and bring them into the light or healing will never happen. And so if this is you, you've been hurt by the church or somebody you really care about has been hurt by the church, I want to say a few things to you today. I hope that FCC is a safe place for you to process and sift through all that garbage all the ways that Jesus has been entangled with this stuff that's happened, I hope it's a place for you to unwind that and get healing. I hope this is a place of healing for people who've experienced all types of abuse, even church abuse. And when you're working, we're working on some ministry things through voice and some groups that are going to be offered to help people process through the trauma of abuse because it is affected so many of our lives. And so I hope you know this is a place where we are, want to be proactively helping people heal. And you probably already know this in your head, but it's hard to, to process through some time. I just want to say that the things that you've experienced or the people that you love have experienced by people who claim the name of Jesus and then abuse their power and hurt others, Jesus isn't like them at all. That's not who he is. And I know that that sometimes it all gets tangled up. And I just want to say, don't let these people pull you away from the real Jesus. The one who came to serve, not be served. The one who had all the power and yet chose service and sacrifice instead of his own platform or glory. I want to tell you that Jesus grieves with you. And he wants to meet with you even in the midst of that pain. Okay. Back to the question, why do powerful people who claim to love Jesus keep abusing their power? Well, I haven't exactly figured out a perfect answer to this question. I haven't cracked the code, but I think I have an analogy that's helped me understand it. Uh, It comes through a story, uh, a story not about human power, but about electrical power, okay? So when I was in college, I was working uh, with my father-in-law, he, he co-owned a construction company, and we were working at this uh, condo uh, complex, and we were doing some electrical work. And I, I have no skills. I'm just digging trenches. That's what I do, right? I, I'm just grunt labor, right? So I'm digging the trenches, and we're laying in PVC pipe, and we're running new wire to this home, okay? Now, it would have been a huge inconvenience to just shut the power off, so my father-in-law is like, I'll do it live. I'll just work on it live. And he's got all the safety equipment to do that, and he's a smart guy, and he's a really safe guy. So I'm like, okay, I'm not touching that thing, but if you think you've got this. And so I'm over here doing this and, and watching this, and all of a sudden I hear a bang! <laughs> and whatever happened, somebody had done some shoddy work in that, that box before we got to it. And so all of a sudden, sparks are flying, there's a huge pop. My father-in-law is totally like, you know, set back by that. He's not hurt, but it's terrifying, so he falls over. 
He knocks over this jar of PVC glue that's highly flammable, and the sparks catch this thing on fire, and now there's a huge fire in this lawn, and I'm stomping it out while my father-in-law tries to like figure out what's even happening because he just barely missed being electrocuted, and we finally get this fire out, and we look at each other, and we just start laughing. Not a, like, that was funny laugh, like, I don't know what else to do laugh. I'm so scared of what just happened right now. My heart was racing, and I was just so glad that he was okay and that I was okay and the whole place didn't burn down because it could have been so much worse. Why? Because electricity is dangerous, right? It's not something you play around with. Sure, it, it can be harnessed and used for a productive purpose, but only with the most extreme caution and care. I say that because it's true for electrical power, but it's also true of human power. We have to proceed with caution. Too often, people think of human power as neutral. They say, you know, power is neither good nor bad, but, you know, people are good and bad. So if good people in the church or the school or the workplace or the government or whatever, if those people have the power, good things will happen. But I want to push back on that. All people are a mix of good and bad. Every one of us is made in the image of God and is fully sinful. Both things are true of us pretty much all the time. So if a person who's considered one of the good guys, what, what protects others from them when they do with their power something that comes from their bad impulses? Every single person is prone to it. Power is dangerous. You've heard the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And it's catchy, and maybe it's an exaggeration, but it seems like the arc of history has shown this to be true. Power does something to people, and most of the powerful people throughout history have a trail of destruction in their wake that at least rivals the good of their achievements, if not more. Even if you read through the Bible, the greatest heroes of the Bible do stupid things with the power that God gives them. And God has to confront them on it. And lastly, it shouldn't be a surprise that power is dangerous. Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve got tossed out of the garden because they desired to be like God. Not in his moral goodness, but in his power. They sought the ability to determine for oneself what is right and wrong, to rule the world without God, to rule as they saw fit. Seeking and abusing power is at the heart of the original sin of the Bible story, and it has been the primary struggle of human history ever since. And if you think I'm speaking strongly about this, it's once you see it, you see it everywhere. Power is not neutral. It is dangerous. Like electricity, it needs to be handled with extreme care and caution because the damage done when humans abuse power is, is far more destructive than a torched patch of grass. So let's look to another aspect this morning of power and this story that Jesus is telling. And it's this idea that there's a difference between God's power and worldly power. God's power and worldly power. Look again to, to Mark 10, starting in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying there's a huge difference between how worldly power works and how godly power works. Worldly power is dangerous, and we need to be able to spot the difference. Worldly power is from the top down. It's coercive. It's trying to control things by force. And this is so much at play when good people, uh, when good people, in quotes, when Christian leaders seek to exercise worldly power, they see a goal. And it's often a very good and admirable goal. And then they'll do whatever it takes to reach that goal using every bit of power and influence that they have. But usually, they make compromises on the way. And to them, it doesn't matter. It's not wrong because it helps me achieve my very good goal. I'll do whatever it takes. The end justifies the means. One famous pastor actually talked about this publicly. He almost bragged about this. He talked about his church being a bus. And on his way to do what God told him to do, there's going to be a lot of people that get run over by this bus, but it's okay, it's worth it. This bus is going to the right place. No. Sorry, I get angry. No. Godly power works differently. Godly power works from the bottom up. It serves. It brings healing. It recognizes that the end doesn't justify the means. How we do something is just as important as what we're doing. The means are an end in and of themselves. And even more, Jesus didn't just talk about this. He demonstrated it. Jesus here calls himself the Son of Man. This is a a title for Messiah, the promised King of Israel. The Bible tells us in other places that he is God in the flesh, He is the human being with the most power in all of history, the entire history of the world, and what does he do with it? He uses his power to empower others. He uses it to serve. He doesn't self-promote. He doesn't demand respect or worship. He resists every effort of his followers when they want him to wield worldly power and take charge. Even though he's the only person in the history of the world who's qualified, he refuses to go down that path. He washes feet. He heals. He shows compassion. He sacrifices everything. He lays down his life. That is God-shaped power. This is the kind of power Jesus is calling us to walk in, in his footsteps. He, He tells us this in Mark 10. Paul reminds us of this. In in Philippians chapter 2, he says, this is the gospel, but this is also your marching order. Philippians 2, starting verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father this is the gospel And it is our marching orders. This is how we move about in the world. This is how we interact with the world around us if we're to operate in Jesus-shaped godly power.
I, I share this verse with you to say this. We often seek to use worldly power because we see that it works in the world. Look at this company. It was successful. And it used this, this hierarchy, this worldly power. Yeah, a bunch of people got messed up in the process. A bunch of people got hurt in the process, but they made a profit. Or this church, look at how fast they grew. They had this, this program centered around the hierarchy and a central charismatic leader, and, and it worked. Look how many people come to their church every week. But it doesn't last. This idea of it works, it doesn't work for very long. It doesn't work for eternity. Every kingdom that functions on worldly power falls apart. It happens over and over again in history. Within churches, abusive leaders get exposed. Companies don't survive. Churches fall apart. What's built on worldly power just will not last. It can't. But Jesus, who went through what the world saw as defeat, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, he was ultimately victorious. God exalted him to the highest place where he rules over all creation. And what looked like weakness to the world was true strength. For the Christian, what feels like defeat or surrender in this world is sometimes ultimate victory. So why have I spent all this time talking about power in the series about church and culture? Well, it's because we have a job to do. The church has been given a mission by Jesus himself that we are to be his witnesses to the whole world. We are to live and speak in a way that demonstrates the goodness and glory of King Jesus. As, Paul, as Jesus said and as Paul echoed, the way we are supposed to do that is Jesus-shaped. It's humility. We have a mission to tell the whole world about Jesus. And how we do that mission is just as important as the mission itself. For the church, that means we need to function on godly power. We need to say no to wielding worldly power. We have to resist the corruption of ourselves and our systems that comes when we don't handle power with the fear and respect it deserves. We must be careful. We need leadership in our churches that is less focused on personality and charisma and more focused on sacrificial service. The filter through which we determine who should lead and who shouldn't, shouldn't should not start with how impressive somebody's gifts are, but how humble they are. I think in a time where the church's reputation has taken a dramatic hit, and in many ways it has earned it, the best way forward may be keep quiet. Let's keep quiet. Let's stop trying to enforce our way of life and belief on others through worldly power, and in quiet humility serve our communities in ways that demonstrate the gospel of Jesus as spoken in Philippians 2. Instead of the telling the world that we are right and everyone should listen to us, let's just demonstrate love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because that's what Jesus did, and that's what changed the world. Collectively, we need to cultivate a life within our community that demonstrates godly power, less focused on a central leader, and I say that as our church's central leader, Churches should, not, should, should be about we, not about me. I have my role to play. Yes, I'm here. The, the Bible says my role in the leadership of this church, our role is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I'm here to take whatever power is entrusted to me to empower us all. 
to go be about the things that Jesus has called us to. But I'm not some special boy. I'm not Moses who hears from God on all our behalf and I come down the mountain and I tell you what to do. I'm one person with a role to play in this church and so are you. Godly power works through a people, not just a single person. And so collectively, we need to cultivate a life together where we all bring our gifts to the table. Not just to see, hey, what can I get out of this program or this place? But to see, what might I bring to the table to serve others, to bring others life? A life together where humility is rewarded, where those who are deemed unimpressive by the world are cared for, listened to, and honored. Does it work? In the short, short term, I don't know. It may not make a splash or be flashy in any way, but I'll tell you this, in the long term and for eternity, it works. We may not be the cool church or the cutting edge church, but that's okay. Let's commit to being the church that functions by godly power, the way that Jesus talks about to his disciples. Let's resist the temptation to seek our own glory Jesus says, the world will do plenty of that, but not so with you. Not so with us. That's what it means for us over the long term. This is how Jesus wants to shape our church and our community. But I also want to finish with this. What does this mean for you, for each of us individually this week? Because this is a thing we do together, but we all have Monday through Saturday where all sorts of other things are going on. And I want to give you some things to help you process through this. A couple of things to take home. The first one is this. We all need to recognize our power. Whether we know it or not, we all have some sort of power. What ways do you have power in the different roles that you play in life? A position at work or on a team. We have social power, right? The power to influence others. We have the power to, to, that we give each other in relationship when somebody opens up to us opens their heart up to us, we have a choice what to do with that. They have handed us power when they open up to us. And we can choose to speak life-giving words to them, or we can speak words of death, harmful words that tear them down. You have power this week, every day this week. But you've got to recognize it. Can't be oblivious to it. What we do and say matters. It impacts the world around us. Recognize your power. And once you do, handle it with caution. Handle with caution. Power is dangerous. I didn't say it's bad. Don't get me wrong. But it's dangerous. Be careful. When you see the end goal, no matter how good that goal is, don't buy into the temptation that the end justifies the means. Don't cut corners. Even if it means you have to slow down and wait to get to your destination. Don't look at people as a means to an end. For Jesus, people were all that mattered. How do you proceed with caution? It's a series of questions. Here's some questions that um, Scott McKnight um, shared on his podcast recently as he was talking about power. He talked specifically about this verse, and he was saying, hey, the disciples were looking for different kind of power than Jesus' power. They were looking for power over. They wanted to dominate. Jesus, when you come into Jerusalem and you kick butt, let us be there with you. Let us be your hype men, Right? Or they were looking for power of influence. We want to be important people. We feel special when we have a title, when people think highly of us. We want that glory. 
They were thinking of power over or power to influence. But Jesus came with power for. Power for. And so we've got to ask ourselves, when I exercise power, am I using it over people? Am I using it for influence or am I using it for others? How can I use this power for the sake of others? How can I use my power to give it away, to serve others, to build them up? Who can you empower this week? Who can you encourage with words of life this week? Because words have power. Who can you serve in a way that demonstrates the love and power of Jesus? And lastly, for those who feel powerless at times, for those who hear this message and feel like, I've been steamrolled by powerful people over and over again. Hear this, Jesus identifies with you. He suffered for you. Isaiah said that the Messiah would take away our sins, but would also take on our pain. He's with you. He has not left you or forsaken you. He came to serve you. My hope is that we here at FCC can serve you well, to be a shoulder to cry on, to be a listening ear, to be a community of healing and empowerment for you. Please don't give up. I'm going to invite the band up, but I just want to close with this. These things that are happening that I'm talking about, they almost feel invisible, right? The way the worldly power works, the way that godly power works. But these things are at play in everything, in every relationship, in every system. And we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we're immune to them. We are all going to be tempted to seek power or influence or glory the way the world does, but not so with us who are his followers. We are humble servants. His his road was one that led to the cross, and he tells us, take up your cross and follow me. So let's focus our hearts on that today. How do we be a church that that is just fueled by Jesus-shaped godly power? How do we as individuals go into the world and interact with all of this stuff and stay humble, stay servants to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to you today and we just confess that sometimes, Lord, we, we do exactly what the world around us does. Just as James and John thought they understood what what they were up to, what you were up to. We sometimes think we can just co-opt the way the world works and put your name on it, and somehow that's okay. Forgive us for when we do that. God, forgive us for the abuses of your church. Forgive us for the times that we have sought our own glory. And so many people have gotten hurt in the process. For the times that Christians have abused their power, and instead of being a light on the world, we've caused pain and harm. God, for those who are hurting in our midst of any type of abuse, God, heal, bring peace, bring comfort. And Lord, as we look to how we leave this place and represent you to the world around us, Lord, we need you. We need your power. We want to speak up for what is right, but sometimes we just need to serve.
We want to wrestle the world into our image because we think we're the good guys. But Lord, we get caught up in it and we become just like it. Help us to be like Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, but living it out as humble servants of you. God, may we actually be a part of changing the world, but by doing it in the smallest ways possible, the ways that look insignificant, but you can take and turn it to a miracle. Lord, we, we give you this time, we worship you because you're worthy of it. Make us like your son, Jesus, God. Make us like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name.